0: We have Mississippi asking the Supreme Court to overrule Roe v Wade in order to uphold the state's restriction on abortion access. I am Adrienne Lawrence and I am hosting this episode of the conversation. And right now we have Kelly Copeland, she's the executive director of NARAL Pro Choice Ohio. Kelly, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, I really appreciate it.
0: Yes, and so right now the oral argument is looming in this massive challenge to Roe v Wade. What do you think people need to
1: know? I think that people need to know that Roe is being directly challenged by this case. Um, and it's entirely possible that Roe as we know it will be gone. But I think it's also important that people know that Roe, which legalized abortion in the United States, didn't provide or guarantee abortion access for everyone who needed it. Um, because of the Hyde Amendment and, and other barriers to, to care. So. Um, you know, things could get a lot worse um, across the country um, if Roe falls. But for a lot of people, abortion access has has had too many hurdles in front of them for it to be real anyway. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
0: indeed, there seem to be hurdles across the board, at least for a certain segment of many communities. Uh, In this case here that is going to be the challenger is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And we know that Mississippi is trying to bolster its law that bans most abortions, I believe, about uh, after 15 weeks. And can you tell us based on your knowledge and education, why is 15 weeks uh, a really detrimental cutoff point?
1: Well, because it directly challenges the viability standard that had been in place in previous restrictions on access to abortion. So, this is a direct challenge to abortion care. And, you know, people, you know, we have a six week ban in Ohio. If this case were allowed to stand, you know, it could mean trouble for the six week bans and it could usher in total bans on abortion care. And so, it's a very serious case.
0: Yeah, indeed it is and we saw that back in May 2021, the US Supreme Court said it was accepting this Dobbs case because it wanted to decide whether all pre viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. That seems to be a pretty sweeping and broad question here. And we know that we have a conservative court leaning right now,
1: so what's your prediction? Well, you know they say fools <laughs> make predictions over the Supreme Court, so I'll try not to be foolish and predict what they're going to do. But it's not it's not a good harbinger that they have taken the case. They could have said, you know, Roe stands, you know, other case law that we've had, other precedents that uphold the right to abortion stand, and that this is clearly unconstitutional. The fact that they didn't do that indicates that they they intend to make major changes.
0: Yeah, and that's really scary, particularly with the makeup of the court right now. And we know that last term, Supreme Court had struck down a Louisiana law that targeted abortion clinics, but the vote was five to four with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the liberals. But we also had that you know, hallmark liberal Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's now been replaced by Amy Coney Barrett, who is a conservative staunch Catholic. How do you see her approaching this challenge that Dobbs is making?
1: I think she was selected because she was as was Kavanaugh because they are expected to overturn Roe versus Wade. I think they were selected for a particular reason and I would not be at all surprised if that is is how they rule. They were selected for that reason. They, you know they weren't selected because they were you know giants in the legal community. They were selected because they were chosen by anti-abortion and extreme conservative organizations who had vetted these people and wanted them on the court. And they were also chosen because they were so young, um, so they could be on the court for decades and decades to come.
0: Yeah, that's actually very scary, the thought that they will be potentially on the court for that long. You know, you hope people will retire or, well, all sorts of things. But in terms of their mentality, okay, so a lot of people don't fully understand how. Turning back Roe v. Wade could truly impact the vast majority of our society, particularly people who are black and brown and will not have access to abortion rights. And so, if you could speak to a little bit about what the true ramifications could look like, that would be great.
1: Well, you know, I think one of the most important things is that we know that it will hit, as you said, it will hit hardest on people of color, um, low income people, people who basically don't have credit cards and cars to be able to escape to states where. Access could remain legal. And so we could have a patchwork of states, many, you know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles where there will be no legal provider of abortion available to people. And those with means ability to you know, get on a plane or get in a car and flee to a state where abortion is accessible legally will be available to some people, certainly the wealthy. But what about the rest of us? What about people who can't get time off of work, who can't get childcare, can't get away, don't have a credit card to cover those travel costs. They will be left to either have a self-managed abortion. Turn, you know, turn to their own means to end their pregnancy or to continue pregnancies and give birth against their will. And that has already been happening to people who can't get over the hurdles to abortion now. It, it will expand to so many more people and abortion access even in states where it remains legal will become limited. Because there will be you know, such a need um, for people to go to the few remaining clinics that will, will be available.
0: And that's very interesting, that observation, the fact that it'll be more black and brown people being forced to have mm-hmm. children because we just saw the census data come out showing that essentially white people are truly moving toward becoming the minority and black and brown people are increasing in numbers. And it seems to be that's something that at least the Fox News pundits will take issue with if they have not already. And. Now we are in a situation where potentially the government and those who are conservative are going to create a larger black and brown population. Do you see a kind of do you see
1: the issue here? I think that abortion has always been an issue of the patriarchy and white supremacy. It is about control. It's not, it's never been about babies. It's always been about who can we control and how can we control them. And one of the fears that I have really is that people will be criminalized and people who are already Criminalized, over criminalized by the so-called justice system in this country, are the same people who will have pregnancies investigated, uh, miscarriages investigated, because you know medication abortion—it's it's almost impossible to tell the difference between a medication abortion and a, a miscarriage. And you know we had people testify just uh, this week in Ohio, where a city is trying to ban all abortions and. Any assistance for someone to get an abortion. She spoke about a miscarriage, a couple of miscarriages she had where she needed to take one of the medications that's part of a medication abortion to help end her miscarriage so that she could try to have a child again. Those things won't be available. So, you know, I think a lot of people who think maybe this won't affect me, it will affect everyone.
0: Absolutely, and that effect seems that it will also be on a grander scale because if you do have more black and brown people who are not in a position to have a child are having children, it seems that especially with issues with prison privatizations and over policing of black and brown communities that you're essentially just creating your next wave of individuals who you are now going to force into kind of that slavery system.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, and we know that people who are incarcerated don't get access to health care when they're there. Um, You know, we saw this with the ICE detention centers and people being sterilized against their will. Um, You know, we looked into it here in Ohio, and a lot of people who are detained get no health care whatsoever. And so, you know, the the state, you know, criminalizes people and then doesn't take care of them, you know, when they are detained. Um, It is, It is one of the most immoral things that this country does. And it will fall hardest on families. 60% of the people who have abortions are single parents. Think about what happens to those families, to those kids, when their moms are criminalized by this system. Where do those kids go? What, you know, we know that the state does not take good care of children in its care. We know that it doesn't take good care of people it incarcerates. It is a very, a very troubling set of circumstances that we're looking at. And they're already happening to people on the margins now.
0: This is very troubling indeed. And we just have about a minute or so left. But is there anything that you really want to communicate that you want people to understand out there, especially as we have this challenge to Roe v. Wade? What can people do?
1: People cannot lose hope. There is hope. You know, we know that people will. You know, They have outlawed abortion many places in history and throughout the globe. But people have turned to their own means to take care of themselves and their neighbors. And we know that no matter what the Supreme Court does, there will be activists in every corner of this country who will stand up and say no. And who will take every measure necessary to ensure that abortion access is not just protected, but that it's expanded because it is a basic human right that everyone needs and deserves. They need to have that access without stigma, without political interference, and they need to be able to get that in their community. And regardless of what the Supreme Court does, there are thousands, millions of activists all over the country who are prepared to take on that fight, who are taking on that fight now and who will never give up.
0: Yes, thank you so much. And we definitely need those activists out there. We need people raising their voices. And as you've said, we need people to keep hope alive because we definitely need people to understand that abortion care is health care. Thank you so much for joining us. Kelly Copeland, Executive Director of NARAL Pro Choice Ohio. Thank you. Pretty soon, children are returning to school buildings and there's heightened anxiety about COVID-19 and the Delta variant. I am Adrienne Lawrence and this is The Conversation. And this time I bring you Emily Jones, Executive for Racial Justice United Methodist Women. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Thanks so much for having me, it's great to be with you. Yes. Yeah, so people are not necessarily seeing the full scope of the repercussions of bringing children back into schools
2: at this point in time. What is it that you think they need to know? Yeah, you know, I think it's been a really rough period of time for parents, for kids, for teachers, and so we're all eager to get back to normal. But I think we need to reckon with the fact that normal wasn't perfect, right? That that normal wasn't um, all okay. As United Methodist women, even pre-pandemic, we were working on interrupting the school-to-prison pipeline because we were seeing such uh, deeply troubling racial disparities in school discipline, really at all levels, uh, from uh, suspension expulsion all the way up through to law enforcement, referrals, school based arrests. So I think we really need to be mindful of the kinds of schools that we want young people to be returning to. So would we have children returning with the heightened
0: anxiety about COVID-19? How are you going to see it play out in terms of the racial disparity in terms of how children are treated in institutions?
2: Yeah, well, you know, the Office of Civil Rights uh, Data Collection Department just came out with some new data about a month and a half ago, and there's a data delay, right? So the data we were looking at was actually from 27. 2720- 2017, 2018. Um, But what we saw was that black children are about 15% of K-12 enrollment, uh, but about 29% of law enforcement referrals. More than 30% of in-school suspensions, out-of-school suspensions, school-based arrests. Um, We also see disparities impacting Native American students, um, as well as Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander students. Um, And we really need to, as a community, be working together to break those trends, right? So we're really doing the work Uh, that needs to happen in order to create a change so that we don't return um, to the same broken patterns that were in place before we entered this 2020, 2021 moment. Absolutely, and in this moment, um, do
0: you think that possibly having this delta variant, all of the things going on in the background, that it's going to aggravate the current system? And if so, how do you forecast it will aggravate the system?
2: Right, well, so I don't have a crystal ball and I'll be frank that I could not have predicted the events of the last two years. So I wanna be uh, humble about what I I don't know. Um, But I will say that young people have been experiencing a lot of uh, stress and strain, the social emotional burden of isolation, of anxiety of grief as folks have watched loved ones um, die, as folks are in the process of trying to figure out what it means to re acclimate to in person schooling. In some cases for the first time in about a year and a half, we would would hope that students would be returning to schools that had supports in place, right? Schools that were really equipped with Uh, grace, right, to use uh, faith language. I come from a a faith tradition. Um, But unfortunately, a lot of schools have really hardened, right? So increasingly, we have schools that have school resource officers in place, school based police, um, but don't have counselors, don't have nurses, don't have social workers. And that, Hardening that has been taking place over not just the past few years, but but um, decades at this point, has really not set us up um, to meet this moment uh, meet this moment well. So it's a cause for concern.
0: Absolutely.
2: And um, just speculating here, but if we know
0: that Black and Brown students are being policed at uh, greater rates, and also being removed from schools at greater rates, and also we know that. Teachers, educators, that they are all on a heightened anxiety level. I would assume that their response time, how they address things are now going to be at that heightened anxiety level. And thus, we are probably going to see even more instances of people being policed and essentially burdened even more and removed from a system that we've already been delayed and set back because of COVID-19 and the quarantine periods that went on last year and kids not being able to be in schools.
2: Mm-hmm, absolutely. We see implicit bias, systemic racism the dynamics that have been in place for so long uh, have not gotten better uh, over the last year and a half. Um, there is still much work to be done and, and until we really do that work until we uh, wrestle deeply, we won't be able to invite schools back into um, uh, environments that are as safe and loving and supportive as we, we need them to be for our, for our young people.
0: Yes, absolutely, because we definitely do need to improve on the system as it currently stands and we know it's at a deficit. And to an incredible extent right now, especially as we're seeing governors, state leaders essentially, getting into kind of heated debates, fights with uh, educators and whether there will be mass will not be mass. Um, but in terms of the racial justice angle, we also know that, uh, that individuals are struggling to necessarily get the attention that they need. I believe it was the Florida Governor DeSantis, who was offering vouchers. Uh, I believe that was him for students who did not want to wear masks. And that's essentially gonna move us back into private schools. I guess, how do you see the consequences of these kind of things playing out, hopefully someday post COVID-19?
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, again, I I don't have a a crystal ball, so I can't predict the future. Um, But I do think that we're at an inflection point where we um, can make different choices, right? We do not need to stay in the same patterns um, that we've been in for uh, years and years, right? I work with a faith based organization, I work with a Christian organization, a group of women of faith around the country. And I really believe that we are able to change, that we are able to do better, that we are able to uh, learn from our mistakes, Um, but we have to be willing to do that We have to, to embrace that. We can't double down on failed policies and expect a different different results.
0: Yes, without question doubling down on those failed policies will not get us anywhere. And I also do understand that there has been rises in uh, physical abuse at home in part because of COVID-19, uh, the heightened anxiety and because people are abusers. And now having children at home during the day and whatnot, uh, that you essentially, they don't have their safe, safe havens anymore because they're not able necessarily to go back to schools. Uh, if you do have some thought or insight on how, I guess, that is going to be addressed or can be addressed or what your organization United Methodist Women is doing, please do share.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so um, let me just point out an incredible learning resource. So over this summer, uh, our members, United Methodist women all across the country, thousands of members uh, from all states were gathering together to really study and reflect um, and use this moment to deepen our understanding. And we were reading this really uh, powerful book together uh, by Dr. Monique Morris, push out the criminalization of black girls in schools. And I'd really uh, invite everyone if you haven't yet engaged with that text um, to please do so because it includes um, such powerful voices. Of young people speaking out um, about uh, what they need um, and what uh, um, what schools that really foster deep safety and, and loving environments might look like. So I'd recommend um, continued learning it, and that as a resource. And then I'd also uh, point us towards action. Right, as United Methodist women, we are committed to not only um, learning and growing uh, in faith, uh, but also. Creating a change, creating a change in the, the world around us. Um, and a couple ways that you can do that uh, first is to take action locally, of course, in your own school and with the young people who are in your own life. Uh, but a second way is really to try and shift uh, policy. Uh, and a couple bills that I would flag that are currently. Uh, um, Pending federal and indeed of advocacy, the ending push out act as well as the counseling not criminalization in schools act. Both of which would help us shift away from these failed policies, right, and over reliance on police in schools, right, a system in which we are criminalizing children of color and instead move towards holistic loving supports, right? Echoing the call that young people have been making for so long to move towards counselors, not cops, right, to move towards police free schools. So I think that we can continue to grow, we can continue to learn, we can continue to deepen our understanding and listening to young people. And we can also be advocating for policy change, both at that federal level and also state and locally. Yeah, that definitely seems
0: to be a very powerful thing. I. I really do support that as well, moving away from cops and more toward counselors. And I assume that this is also something that is wrapped in the kind of the defund the police movement in terms of not pouring resources into law enforcement, particularly in educational institution when you're dealing with younger people. And let's move toward counseling and actually mentorship and growth. Is that something that the United Methodist Women is looking to promote?
2: So I think what we're really invested in is creating systems that work for young people, right? As an organization, we've been around for more than 150 years. Um, and of course, the language of interrupting the school to prison pipeline um, is much newer than that. Uh, but for us, it comes out of a really long standing commitment to supporting putting faith, hope and love in action for women, children and youth to changing the conditions for young people and to addressing racial justice. Um, and at this point, uh, the, the over reliance on policing, right? The the um, Way that we are continuing to harden schools, so that young people are met not with supportive uh, professionals trained um, in in trauma-informed care and child development, but instead uh, policing. That is a system that is set up to criminalize. Right? That is not uh, an effective approach. And so we really want to see that change. We want to see schools um, move in a direction of uh, transformative justice, restorative justice, uh, wraparound support services, be places that again we come from this from a faith based place. So, be places of grace, right? Be places of love, be places in which the grace that is extended to white children is also extended to black children, native children, children of color. That I think is our our, um, our call and that has been our call in in a long term way um, and will be uh, until we see the change that is needed.
0: Awesome, I fully support that. Thank you so much, Emily Jones, Executive for Racial Justice United Methodist Women. Thanks so much.